Cubs, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? Here's what's going on. We were on here three days ago. We were five games into the finals. We were teeing up game six. You said, I mean, I think we both agreed, actually, that Giannis Antetokounmpo was putting forth one of the greatest finals performances that we'd ever seen. You said it would be idiotic to even consider giving finals MVP to any other player, even if the Bucks had lost the series. And then Giannis went out and in game six put up 50 points, 14 rebounds, five blocks, played elite on ball and help defense, scored almost half the Bucks points, shot 16 of 25 from the field, 17 for 19 from the free throw line. You were saying, look, Giannis is shooting 60% from the line in this series. That's pretty good by his standards. Shot 17 for 19 from the free throw line and leads the Bucks to their first championship in 50 years. He finishes the finals with averages of 35.2 points, 13.2 rebounds, four offensive rebounds, five assists, 1.2 steals, 1.8 blocks, on 65.8% true shooting. What a world. I mean, that uh, that was incredible, and I am so, so happy for that dude. Obviously, we're going to jump into this with some specifics, but just in broad strokes, I mean, what uh, what are you feeling right now about the way that those finals ended? I am feeling that Giannis Antetokounmpo is the best basketball player on planet Earth right now. And as I said, I I think I said it in our last episode, over the last 14 years, basically since LeBron eviscerated the Pistons in the 2007 East Finals, which uh, you scripted a great video for on the Scores YouTube page. But since then, which was a little over 14 years ago, as I said in our last episode, there have been very few instances, few enough that you can count um, on less than one hand, of times where I thought somebody else might be the best player in the world. Somebody not named LeBron. And it was like KD a couple of times during that run. It was Kawhi in the spring of 2019. I mean, you can maybe argue Curry around 2015, 16, but I I never got there with him only because by the time they ended up meeting LeBron in the finals, even when they won, LeBron very much asserted himself as the best player. So Giannis is like, other than KD and Kawhi, the only guy that I've even considered might be the best player in the world at any given time, not named LeBron James over the last 14 years. And I just, look, I know other guys got hurt. I know the path to the finals was like, like, I know there are a bunch of things you can say as to why, well, you can't just say that yet, that he's the best, but it's like, man, if you just watched what he did in the NBA finals against a, say what you will about the Suns path there, but against a very good Suns team that was capable of getting there, even without all the injuries that opened the path for them. What Giannis did in this finals was just like indescribable on both ends of the court. And um, yeah, to cap it with a 50-piece and a 50-piece Mac minis from uh, Chick-fil-A after everyone saw that video, it's just, it's unbelievable, man. And, and, And I just don't know how you watch that series unfold. And honestly, the playoffs unfold as a whole as we got further and further along and come away with it thinking anything other than this guy's probably the best player alive right now. I mean, 
Yeah, that that's definitely one way to look at it. I think it's like he was the belt holder just based on the fact that he was by far the best player on the team that ultimately won the championship. Yeah. I think what's cool about the place that the league is in right now, and I feel like this is something that's sort of been beaten to death and it's almost like tiresome how many times it gets repeated, but it is true. There is so much talent in the NBA right now. It's kind of ridiculous. And I really believe Giannis sort of goes into next season with that number one beside his name because of what he just accomplished. But like starting from scratch, I don't know that I would necessarily put him ahead of KD, you know, ahead of LeBron even. And and I think we're going into next season with like that title being very much up in the air and, and so many different guys who could conceivably claim it, right? Like between Giannis and KD, LeBron, I think Steph is still yep. in that mix. You know, I think... Jokic and B, like Doncic? I haven't forgotten what what those guys did. I haven't forgotten what Luca did in the first round. I mean Kawhi, like do you remember how insanely good Kawhi looked yeah. before he got injured and knocked out of these playoffs? Like there are so many guys who I feel like can lay claim to that mantle going into next season. It's pretty damn exciting, and just like how many different types of players are in that mix, and like how much of a distinction there is in the way that they go about asserting their greatness is I think what makes it super cool. Like, obviously Giannis and Jokic play two completely different brands of basketball. They're still, by any measure, at the, at the least like two of the five best players in the world. And they are both, I think, classified as big men, but like they play two very different brands of big man basketball. Yeah. And then there's Joel Embiid, you know, another big man who plays like a different type of big man than those two guys do. Like it's just Yeah, and then and then there's Kevin Durant who's basically <laughs> a seven footer, but he's a guard. You know what I mean? Or like a wing. Um yeah, man. The just like I, I get I get what you're saying and I completely agree. It's it's unbelievable the level of true superstar, like transcendent talent in the league right now. Star talent in general. And it's awesome how like very different it all is even when some guys are the same size or you know it's just it's it's a really cool time for the NBA yeah and like you know just to that point despite all of the very depressing injuries to star players i got to say like this was a pretty damn good postseason yeah and an like, amazing finals it, to be honest yeah and just like you know just from beginning to end like think about all the jaw dropping individual performances that we saw you know, yeah. like Giannis, obviously everything that he did from game two onwards in the finals is front of mind right now. But like, you know, Durant in games five and seven of the Nets Bucks series, like that's about as well as I've ever seen basketball played by yeah. anybody. And same goes for Kawhi in the latter half of that series against Dallas. And I mean, Dame, like that 55 point game against the Nuggets in round one was one of the greatest playoff performances I've ever seen. Luca, I feel like had like two of the greatest playoff performances I've ever seen, and I'm not sure they were even better than his playoff performances last year. And I thought those were some of the best playoff performances right. I've ever seen. Right. And I mean, like you know, even Devin Booker, like his 40 point triple double yeah. in Game One against the Clippers, Chris Paul's masterpiece of a Game Six to close that series out, Trey Young's Game One against Milwaukee. This was uh, this was a pretty fun postseason, all told, and mm -hmm. it was just you know, peppered with unbelievable individual performances and none greater, honestly, than the one that ended the season. Like in the last game of the season, I think we saw maybe the single greatest game that we've seen all year long. And, and one of 
the great finals games ever. You know what I think is really interesting to to kind of think about going into next year is because if, if you think about Giannis's free throw struggles, like I I don't want to chalk it all up to like you know it was all psychological. I, clearly, there, there's obviously skill stuff like related to those struggles, skill development stuff. And I'm not saying okay, well, like just like that, he's a good free throw shooter. But I think we'd have to acknowledge like at least some of it is psychological, right? Even just like the amount of time he was taking between free throws. Like if the refs wanted to, they could have almost called him for a violation every single time. At the very least, some of it had to be psychological and maybe a little bit like in his own mind of disbelief in him in himself at the free throw line. Given how he shot the, the, the ball from the free throw line in the finals, but particularly in the game six clincher to win a goddamn championship. If it was psychological, could you not make the case that he has now just fixed those issues going forward? Because no, because here's what I'd say again, just from the psychological standpoint, whatever chunk of it was psychological to me no longer exists because if you're Giannis going to the line, maybe like not that con yourself. And like, it's one of those things like you gotta, you almost got to make it happen yourself to believe it. However, it does happen. You just went 17 of 19 in a finals game. You know what I mean? Like, like he, you, you know, there's that clip of him at practice. I think it's from this playoffs. It went viral earlier in this playoffs. And I don't remember who he was talking to. If it was like a coach or PJ Tucker or something. And I think someone was trolling him about the free throws and he was practicing some. And he says in this video, he says like, oh man, he's like, I've seen and done it all at the free throw line. Like I've airballed it. I've done this. I've done that. I've got the people chanting, but it's like, you go into next season, if you're honest, and you step to the free throw line, it's like, really, what is there to ever worry about? Like, oh, I'm gonna, I might airball a free throw? Okay, cool. I've always got the memory of 17 for 19 in, in a freaking championship closeout game. Like, I know I can do this. Like, I, I don't know if this makes sense, but I think that whatever share of his free throw struggles, whatever percentage of that was psychological, I mean, there's a legitimate argument to be made that ceases to exist now because how could it 17 of 19 in a championship closeout game yeah well i mean you and i both know that's not really how it works right like obviously this is a huge vindication for Giannis, a huge weight off of his shoulders and i i don't think he's going to go into future seasons necessarily feeling the same kind of pressure that he felt this year but like it's a clean slate man everybody's going to be looking for him to back it up and prove that it wasn't a one-off or a fluke and that he can do it again. Like the pressure is going to ratchet right back up mm-hmm. again. And so it's not like that just goes away. And if it, if it is a psychological issue, I don't think, you know, like I, I think you make a compelling point about the reasons why it may be behind him. I just don't necessarily know that it's going to play out that way, especially when you sort of factor in the kind of mechanical right. challenges that go hand in hand with that. Uh, and the fact that Giannis, <clears throat> you know, flatly is just not that good of a shooter yeah he's gonna have to work around that in concert with you know whatever psychological issues may have been going into those struggles so we'll see on that front but uh for now i mean this is just a a celebration a coronation for him we're gonna kind of hit on the finals and then sort of look ahead to the offseason a little bit but uh let's do it this way let's do one thought or kind of big picture takeaway that you have, uh, and then I'll, I'll I'll give my thoughts as well. One for the Bucks, one for the Suns. Where do you want to start? I might as well start with the champs, I guess. What do you got? I'd say that 
I don't know how much of a big picture thought it is, but what I'd say is that all the Drew Holiday stuff, and I guess the team building in general, but specifically Drew Holiday, because that was the move that was most criticized. And I know I'm not breaking any news here, but my big picture takeaway is like how how worth it it was now, right? And I know we went, we both agreed last week, you went on that rant, or not last week, earlier this week, you went on that rant about how, you know, it's it's a shame that it is such a results oriented business or that it's like so so much of the narratives and people's opinion is results oriented and I get that and I agreed with it but I think the one area where it, it kind of ends up making sense is when you actually win it like I agreed with you that it, it shouldn't be held against guys and teams sometimes when they don't get over the hump because as you mentioned it could be because of KD's shoe being a size too big it could be because Kawhi Leonard got four bounces off the rim before a ball went in so I agree with all that but but when you actually win it, I'm fine with it becoming a results-oriented business because, as I've said 30,000 times this playoff run, the, now the number would be 13 in 41 years, but 13 franchises have won an NBA title in the last 41 years. You get even one, man. And it, it renders so many criticisms before almost moot. And look, I was as critical as anyone when they gave up four control of four picks for Drew Holiday. You know, I said at the time that if that ended up being what helped them re-sign Giannis, it would be worth it regardless of what else happens. And I think it was a big part probably of why he ended up uh, committing there. Then they gave Drew the big extension, you know, after Giannis had already re-signed. And I wasn't really a big fan of that. And, and I guess you could make the argument that the extension hasn't kicked in yet. So they didn't really have to do that and they could have still won the title. But just all of it to me goes out the window a, because I thought Drew's defense helped change this series, and he was, despite his individual offensive struggles, a big part and reason of why they finally got over the hump and won a championship. But like, just when you think of it all together, it's like, and I even tweeted this the night up, now, obviously this isn't the case, but now that they actually won one, now I would say they could have given up even more for Drew Holiday, okay? Not extended him. Not got Giannis's commitment or extension, lost Giannis anyway, been completely boned for the future because of all they gave up for Drew while not re-signing him and losing Giannis. And I still would sit here right now and say it was worth it because as much as maybe it wouldn't feel worth it in the moment if your team's like, you know, in the doldrums seven straight years, again, 13 teams have won one in the last 41 years. And as much as we can say, look, you know, a team having a five-year run of contention is great. And it is great. Like, as much as all that stuff does matter, winning consistently matters. You don't want to be at the bottom for too long. Like, at the end of the day, ask a lot of players and team execs and whatever, staffers, like, what their ultimate goal is in this business aside from making money. And it's winning at the highest level. It's winning a damn championship, you know? The Bucks have done that. And it's kind of like what I was saying earlier this week too. And it's like, you know, there, there is a lot of things that you can rightly criticize them for over the last few years, including in, the, in their roster construction. There's stuff you can criticize Bud for over the, over the years, obviously. But like, not that that stuff doesn't matter or that it's not valid that they were criticized for those things. But guess what? Doesn't matter because they won. And that might sound simplistic and, and way too results-driven. But at the end of the day, this is a very results-driven business, right? And so, yeah, that, that that's my big takeaway is that the Drew thing in particular 
is worth it and then some now. And it, it could have even gone way worse than that future-wise after they had won this title. And I would still be saying that because I just think even getting one in this league, particularly when you are not one of the franchises that is always kind of around the area of contention, is always in the free agency mix, it's even more, not necessarily special, but it's even more meaningful to even just get one. So that's my little tangent about the yeah. Drew trade obviously being worth it, but being worth it even if Giannis hadn't resigned and and he and Drew wasn't extended. Yeah, so I, I mean, I was always a defender of the Drew trade, even from a process perspective. Uh, I, I just felt like you know, with Giannis close to free agency, with the Bucks sort of having this championship window, I, I did not think that it was too much to give up to make the kind of upgrade that they were making, and obviously once you know, Giannis's Supermax quickly followed, I think it was even, it looked even more justified because then you're looking at the the draft capital the Bucks actually gave up and looking at probably a bunch of picks in like the 20s and a couple of pick swaps that probably won't even end up coming into play. So I think that return from that perspective starts to look a lot lighter. But I do think it's interesting, you know, to talk about, stuff from a results-oriented lens as it pertains to this Bucks team because, uh, you know, that Drew trade aside, the process wasn't all that sound, you know, throughout right. the last couple of years, right? Like, the, I, I still think, you know, the decision to let Brogdon walk at the time was pretty inexcusable. Obviously, the way that the Bogdanovich thing blew up in their face last offseason was you know, potentially catastrophic and still just like a bad look for the front office that like they, they allowed the details of that sign and trade to leak before it was legal for them to be negotiating with him. I mean, the, the Connaughton contract that wasn't cap compliant that led to them having to give him an extra year and an extra $6 million on his deal. Um, the, you know, the process wasn't always sound, but as you said, and I actually wrote exactly this in my sort of, uh, you know, post-finals column about the Bucks. that's just all water under the bridge now because they won a freaking championship and that's all that matters. Like, that's the goal. It doesn't really matter how you get there. They it, got there. It's water under the bridge that their championship bus is rolling over is what it is. I, I'm trying to like process that visual metaphor right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I quite get it, but... Um, no, I, I understand. So driving over, I should say, I meant, yes, I meant yes. driving over, but I said rolling over, but I didn't mean rolling over. Yeah, no, the, I was imagining like the bus I, literally rolling no, into the river or whatever yeah. water. No, it's water under the bridge that their championship bus is driving over. And then like at the same time, you know, okay. Like if they had actually consummated that Bogdanovich deal, I mean, I think there's a decent chance they still would have wound up winning the championship this year and probably would have been a little bit better set up for future seasons. So, yeah. you know, I don't know if it's totally fair to say it doesn't matter at all. Like, you know, the the, the way that they made mistakes may wind up compromising their ability to, to do this again. And that kind of leads me actually into my big thought about the Bucks, which is just in hindsight how improbable this feels. Yeah. And I don't mean that in the sense that it was lucky or anything like that. And I, I say that as somebody who's actually been a big Bucks believer over the last three years and like consistently put them in the title mix. It's more just that like they overcame a lot of roadblocks 
and setbacks and limiting factors to get this done. And I think like this roster had pretty major flaws that would be prohibitive for just about any other team. Like there's not a ton of ball handling, not a ton of passing. And I think most glaringly, not a lot of shooting. Like the Bucks shot 33% from three in the playoffs, which I think it was Ben Taylor who dug this stat up. That is the lowest three-point percentage in the playoffs for any champion since the 2010 Lakers, who obviously won a title in like a much different offensive environment yeah. uh, and one in which three-point shooting was not nearly as important as it is now. They started Pau Gasol and Andrew Bynum. <laughs> right, right. And the only champion that was that was worse, or sorry, the only other champion that was worse in the post-hand-checking era was that 2004 Pistons team. So... <laughs> You know, we're talking different style. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like we're we're talking about almost twenty years of playoff basketball in which, you know, these Bucks would have stood out as an outlier, even in a less three point dominant era, and, you know, for them to have done it in twenty twenty one, I think is pretty wild. And like they're playing PJ Tucker big big minutes, and that dude, I love PJ Tucker. He had some huge moments for them in the playoffs. I. I said, I don't think they get through that net series without him, but like he is an offensive zero basically. And it is really difficult in this day and age to give big minutes to an offensive zero and win in the playoffs. They were able to do it. They were able to do this with just like not great spacing (laughs) and not a ton of half court playmaking. I mean, we've had the conversation many a time about, okay, do they have a championship level shot creator? And, you know, I think you could say like Chris Middleton proved himself to be that level of player, but also like, I mean, he, he still put up like below average efficiency in the finals, like, because as as many kind of clutch shots as he made, as many times he came up big when like they needed him to run their half court offense and, and they needed Giannis to transition into more of a role as an off-ball player and a screen-and-dive guy, and Middleton had to be the guy who was initiating the offense. Like, he came through on a number of occasions doing that. He's still, like, he he barely gets to the free-throw line. He still, like, doesn't have the tightest handle. He's a pretty good playmaker, not a great one. But, you know, the pull-up shooting came in very handy. And so I think you have to say, given that he was, uh, you know, a, a lead initiator in the half court for the team that won the championship. I think you have to put him on that level, but I still think it's fairly improbable for, for him and holiday to have been the guys in the backcourt on the team that won it. So, I mean, drew like the, the Bucks starting point guard put up 44% true shooting in the finals and 48% for the playoffs and everything you said about drew and, and like how his defense changed the finals it is a hundred percent true. And like, if you're talking about the Bledsoe upgrade, I mean, what holiday did, in that game six against the Hawks to close them out without Giannis and what he did in game five against the Suns. Those two games alone are like, <laughs> that's justification for the trade. And Eric Bledsoe could never have done anything remotely on that level in those spots. But, you know, taking the playoffs as a whole, and I do think obviously a big part of Drew's value comes from the fact that he can contribute even when he's not scoring offensively he was kind of a disaster at a lot of points in this playoffs <laughs> and um yeah. and so i just think you know taking all that into account the imperfect 
front office process that I mentioned leading up to this, you know, Jeff Teague being the backup point guard and, and like Mike Buttonholzer for as many times and as many different ways as I've defended him from what I felt was unfair scrutiny this year, his commitment to continuing to play Jeff Teague almost undid all of that for me because the minutes were just like consistently catastrophic from the moment he stepped on the floor. And even in that game six, he somehow managed to be a minus five in one and a half minutes on the floor. So they, they overcame all that in one. And I just think uh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's like even listening to you list all those things, it feels like it's mid February and we're clowning, uh, the Fugazis of the month. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 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 think of all you just said and all of it is valid. Even even the Middleton stuff. Look, I'm not, I like Chris. The one thing I'll say is even when I've criticized Chris Middleton, like I, I really like Chris Middleton. I do. Um, I was lucky enough just by chance, like I, I happened to be the one in there because I can't remember who I was trying to talk to um, in the visiting locker room in Toronto that night from the Bucks, but I happen to be one of maybe the only one of the only two people, like media people, in the locker room when Chris Middleton found out that he was going to be an All Star for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it was a really awesome moment. He was really cool. But like, I like Chris Middleton a lot, man. I like what he's done with his game. I think one thing that doesn't get spoken enough about is the fact that Chris Middleton suffered a disgustingly debilitating injury for a professional athlete, for a basketball player especially. Yeah, well, his calf he tore his hamstring off his hamstring. the bone off the bone in training camp in 2016. And he suffered that injury while being a like a very good, a solid player, not a great player, but a very good player. And he came back from that injury, which a lot of people forget about. He went from good player to perennial all-star coming back from that injury, which is unbelievable. Shows you like the kind of work ethic and commitment the guy has and resiliency. So I have nothing against Chris Middleton, but yeah, there there are limitations there when that guy is you know has to play the role of championship closer because the one A on the team you know has some like individual offensive limitations, shooting limitations. We'll say with Giannis, and and Middleton you know shut a lot of people up because of what he did this this postseason, especially with the clutch shooting. Like the guy hit an unbelievable amount of clutch shots. Can't remember what the stat is now. I think he's got fifteen or sixteen shots. Uh, in his playoff career now to either tie or take the lead in the final two minutes. And it's like, that's very high on the all time um, rankings. The guy is a clutch performer. Like you can't deny that. But as you mentioned, um, as important as those clutch shots were, you know, if he had shot the ball better overall this spring, like they also wouldn't have needed those clutch shots Mm -hmm. as regularly. And so like so much of this Bucks championship run for as much as again, they can always shut me up and shut us up by simply saying, well, we won one. And there, and I agree. I already said my piece about that. Everything is now worth it and everything is moot. But it, it's just, it's hilarious to me that even in ultimate victory and ultimate triumph, we still have all this to say uh, on the other side about the Bucks. And, and yeah, just listening to you rattle off all the reasons kind of not to believe in them in a way. It's crazy that we're sitting here, you know, like 48 hours plus after they just won the damn championship. It, I guess a lot of that can just be chalked up, not to diminish, you know, the contributions of the other guys in the front office and the coaching staff and stuff, but a lot of it can be chalked up to Bobby Portis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bobby, the real MVP Portis. But no, seriously, like it, it's so much of it can just be chalked up to the fact that they had the best guy on the court more often than not. 
And, mm-hmm. and that's really important in basketball, specifically in the NBA. All right, Suns thoughts? My Suns thought it's not to be a downer, but that that, that I don't know that they're going to get a better chance than this. Mm-hmm. And maybe like the word ever is obviously very strong because who knows how long the NBA goes on, maybe longer than you or I are here. And like to, to say this was their best chance they'll ever have again, obviously is... It's kind of ridiculous, but in the moment, it, it definitely feels like it, their best chance for a long time. And that's not discounting what they have in place and like the infrastructure here. You know, um, Devin Booker's under contract long term. DeAndre Ayton and Mikael Bridges are both under team control long term because even though their contracts don't extend that far, they're both still on their rookie scale deals. Uh, you know, Jay Crowder. I don't know what people think of the contract. I think he's going to make about ten million a year. Which I think in this. This cap world isn't terrible, but I think he's under contract another two or three years. Saric, who obviously is hurt now, I think they have for a year or two. I think Monty Williams, uh, I don't think he was perfect in the playoffs or in the finals or anything, but I think at the very least, he's proven the guy is a very capable coach, even if you know, you're know you playing at for the highest stakes. Um, James Jones, in, in his brief tenure as a front office executive, I think has shown himself very well and proven himself a a good executive you know which is one executive of the year not that that means he's going to be good forever but you know what i mean like the, the the pieces are in place where it's not like i think they're going to fall off a cliff and you know be complete afterthoughts i think they can be good for a while i think they can be you know even like a fringe contender but you know wh- whether chris paul comes back even if chris paul does come back and they are maybe like a fringe contender whatever you know, you got to look at next year and think of the healthy nets. You got to figure, even though, you know, I've admitted that there are some big time roster construction issues with the Lakers and that they don't really have avenues to drastically improve. When you have LeBron James and Anthony Davis, and if those guys are healthy, you don't really need anything drastic. Like you can make some tweaks and be right back and should be right back in the championship picture, if we're being honest. We'll see what happens with Kawhi's knee and then also his free agency but I would expect him to be back and expect him to be back on the court at some point during the season and then you can't rule it like you just kind of go down the list I mean the Bucs themselves the defending champions not to say that Phoenix can't win it next year but I just think it's a lot less likely that they will get there again you know that things will line up the way they did even even though I wrote about how they deserve to be in the finals regardless of all those injuries that doesn't mean that'll happen again, you know, just because they didn't necessarily need the path to be cleared for them doesn't mean it wasn't very advantageous for them that it happened and and things probably won't break right like that again. And again, that's that's taking into account Chris Paul coming back, which there's no guarantees he will. And if he leaves, that is a big, big blow to this team. Again, I'm not even saying they can't be a playoff contender if he leaves, but they're not going to be anything close to a championship or finals contender. And it it kind of reminds me, and look, I guess this is even a moot point in a way because I wrote a couple of years ago after the Bucks lost and blew that 2 nothing series lead to the Raptors in the East Finals after they, you know, surprisingly had the best record in the league that year and Giannis won his first MVP that sometimes, you know, like a lot of people after a year like that look at it as like, okay, well, we'll be back next year. We'll have another shot at it. And what a lot of teams and fans forget is that sometimes you're – first best shot is your last best shot, you know? And if you don't capitalize on it, it sucks. And again, I realize that in a way it's moot because I was talking about the Bucks two years ago and now they just ended up coming back and winning it. But 
for as good as Devin Booker is, the Suns don't have Giannis. Right. They don't have that's, that. That's the crucial difference. That, yeah, exactly. They don't have that great equalizer in terms of a truly generational talent. So that that's my big takeaway. I know it, it sounds kind of alarmist to be, you know, they just. No, it's not. A, I mean, look, making the finals is so insanely hard. Right. And even for the best teams, like very often things need to break right and you need to get some element of luck along the way. Even if that element of luck is just like we stayed healthy, you know, it's it's just like an absence of bad luck is is a form of good luck in itself. It's so hard. The smart bet is always on that team, like not making it back there. Right. And, you know, I think especially for the Suns team, who's probably most important player i think you know at various points you could argue that booker became that guy but on the whole like start to finish this season i think their most important player was chris paul who's 36 years old and about to become a free agent and even if he's back which i expect him to be how many seasons like the one he just had does he have left in the tank you know what i mean like i'm not saying necessarily that it's going to be a one-off but it's going to be really, really difficult for the Suns to make it back there. And I think what they do have working for them, even though they don't have a player of Giannis's caliber, who you can look at and say, okay, yeah, like getting back to the finals is obviously going to be really, really difficult, but we have this sort of generational superstar who can carry us there so we can be reasonably assured that we're still going to be in that mix. I do think what the Suns have working for them is a young core of players that are going to continue to get better. And I think that's, you know, that's my big question or my big takeaway, I guess, is like, I'm really interested to see what kind of step those young guys can take. And I think chief among them is Aiton. Like, I think it, their ability to get back to this stage is, to me, contingent on Aiton's continued development, especially at the offensive end of the floor. Because, you know, as that series, that final series went on, like what I found myself thinking was, a team like the Bucks should not be able to get away with switching to the extent that they did. You know, like that, that became a big problem, I think, for the Suns. Like Aiton's passivity became a big problem for them. And in fairness, he was having to play 40 plus minutes a game because Saric got injured and there were no great alternatives. And for a center to do that in today's age of spread offense is like super difficult. Like basically none of them do it. And you know, so if this was just a case of him wearing down, I, I do think that's understandable. But I still think like the Suns should not have been getting manhandled in the paint and on the glass at both ends of the floor the way that they did, given that they were playing a seven footer the vast majority of the time. And Brooke Lopez swallowed him up in the latter stages of the finals, especially in that game six. And so... Look, I, I, I think the Suns, as they're constructed, they badly needed an interior scoring presence of some kind, and Aiton just couldn't give that to them. And, and I I don't think it's necessarily just about Aiton. Like, he was only 22, and he came a ridiculously long way in a short period of time, had overall a fantastic postseason debut. It was one of the biggest reasons they even got to where they got to. But for this Suns team and the way that they're constructed, moving forward, it, like they need that leap, I think, to come from Aiden if they're going to keep this momentum going. Like I love Mikhail Bridges, and obviously I think he's going to be a huge part of their future. But I don't ever see him evolving into like a secondary or even a tertiary scorer slash creator on a championship team. 
I think they need Aiden to sort of round out his offensive game, be that interior scoring threat that they need him to be. And that is the thing to me that's going to kind of keep them in that championship conversation. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. I just, it's just going to be tough, man. It's going to be tough. And yeah, even the Aiden stuff, like we talked about it, I think last episode, right? And and I mentioned how the Suns weren't looking for him enough. And you mentioned that part of it was his fault because he wasn't he wasn't um, being assertive enough. There was a play in game six and it was early in the game. It wasn't like a fast break. It was like a semi-fast break. And Mikel Bridges had... Kill Bridges had DeAndre Ayton basically wide open under the hoop with like plenty of time and space to get him the ball and did not even look at him. So yeah, I think I think it was there was fault on both sides there. But um yeah, Eaton's development is big. Booker, you know, for as great as Booker is, there's even another step for him to take, man. Like if if the Suns want to get to the point where just having Devin Booker means like perennial playoff contention at worst. Even Booker has to take another step. And yeah, it's just uh it's it's just tough for me to see them right now as like an automatic like fill in, okay, this team will be there, you know, by the end of the, like that there are teams we can think of like that, if healthy. And it's weird to say because they just made the finals and I was raving about them all year and I thought they were built to win now, but I I do not see them as that team right now that we can just pencil in for long playoff runs every year. And, right. and I think that is a downer, even though most French, most teams are in that same position. It's a downer. Like how many, look at the Western Conference landscape right. and how many of those teams can you pencil in for a long playoff run at this point? If healthy, yeah. I, I did say if healthy. Uh, mm-hmm. Lakers, yeah, Clippers. Nuggets, I, nuggets if they're fully healthy. Yeah, maybe. Nuggets. Clippers, I guess, depending on Kawhi's free agency, but. And his health. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like I'm saying, like plenty of teams are in that same mix of not being able to be penciled in like that, it just it feels a lot more deflating when your team just made the finals and we're saying that about you. Made the finals and had a 2-0 lead and, and were that close. Man, that's the thing. I think that's what makes it sting even more. This was not the case of like an unlikely finals run where deep down you're just happy to be there as a fan because you know you don't really have a shot to win it or that it would be insane if you actually went. Like, in my mind, the Suns were the better constructed team I know they didn't have the best player and that obviously matters, but I thought they were the better constructed team, even though it didn't always look like it in the finals. They very much could have and arguably should have won this series. After they go up 2-0, um, that, that game four, man, we talked about it last episode, but all the reasons why, looking at the game statistically, analytically, eyeball test, however you want to look at it, the Suns should have won that basketball game and should have come home up 3-1 with a chance to win the title on a Saturday night in Phoenix. And instead, they're sitting here having not won a game after game two. You know, like they, not that it would have been done at 3-1, but man, it would have been real tough for Milwaukee to come back from. Like the Suns had it in their fingertips, and they let it slip away. The Bucks obviously, and Giannis played a big part in that, you know, in, in snatching it away. But I think that's what makes what I'm saying that much tougher if you're a Suns fan. It's It's... Not only that you got there, but you got there and you can talk yourself into thinking you should have won it. And now you're looking at a somewhat uncertain future from a contention standpoint. That's just, it's a tough pill to swallow, man. Again, especially when you're not one of the franchises and markets, you know, for as nice as Phoenix looks and the desert and everything and the sun, like when you're not one of the franchises in the markets that can kind of 
convince itself it'll be there some in some form or another, you know, every five years, 10 years, whatever it is, when you're not one of those teams and you come that close and you arguably should have won it. And now you're looking at this uncertain future. It's just, yeah, that's tough. Well, you know, the Bucks were in a not dissimilar position. Again, mm-hmm. like the, the big caveat being they have Giannis and that is like the huge difference maker, but they saw what may have been their best opportunity slip away in 2019 when they couldn't close out that game three that would have put them up three nothing and probably ultimately punched their ticket to the finals and maybe won in 2019. And in the interim, I mean, two years pass and they're facing all these questions about whether they're ever going to get it done. And then they kind of flipped the script, right? Like they were down and out against Brooklyn, down two nothing. And that game three was a slog like an ugly ass grind of a game in which I think they were trailing in the final minute and just managed to get their nose across the finish line in that game. And it was kind of similar to what the Raptors did to them in 2019. And obviously like the injuries played a part for Brooklyn there and Kyrie went down in game four and the series was never the same after that. But like the Nets could have been up three, nothing in that series and the Bucks just managed to squeak that one out and it totally changed the complexion and ultimately led to them pulling it out. And then they do it again. They come back from, from O2 down again in the finals. And I don't know. I mean, if, if I guess the Suns are looking for some kind of inspiration and, and a reason to believe that like they can undo uh, the damage, whatever, you know, psychological that's been done to them having come so close and not sealed the deal, they can kind of look at the bucks, I suppose, and, and see a reason to believe that they can maybe flip the script in the future. And and my my comeback again would just be but Giannis and and the the, <laughs> the last thing I want to say on this note um, before we get we move on here is that and I tweeted this as well like the night of the title win look people I respect in the industry I'm not I'm not saying clowns or anything like that but a lot of people were tweeting and talking about what this could mean for like you know, the next crop of young stars or whatever, when their free agency comes up and, you know, when, when maybe they're on a team in a smaller market that hasn't gotten over the hump and hasn't done a good job building around them, but like, maybe they just stick it out. And, and instead of fleeing and, and building a super team elsewhere, they just, now they'll stay because Giannis did not any one. And, and I'm sorry, I think that's a ridiculous <laughs> sentiment to have after that win. Not because it's not a nice sentiment, not because sure, it wouldn't be great for those small market fans, whatever, but because as I said that night, like the notion that some future star should just like stay on a, in a non-ideal situation rather than fleeing for greener basketball pastures because Giannis did it or so I can do it like Giannis did it. Like the problem with that notion is that few basketball players that have roamed this earth or that will roam this will ever be as good and have ever been as good as Giannis is right now. Like that's the cold, hard reality of it. So this idea that like, oh, you know, the next star should do it this too and like just stay and make it work. It's like there are very few players that will ever be capable of making it work in the situation Giannis made it work with all of the caveats you threw out, you know, 20 minutes ago about all the ways that they were, they they didn't build this anything close to perfectly, okay? And a lot of the reason it worked is just because Giannis is as good as he is. And I just think... It's almost unfair in a way to future start, like whoever it is now that you're going to then turn around and be like, well, could, why didn't you do it like Giannis? You know, it's like, no, it's because yeah. most won't be able to. 
So let's not even go down that road. Um, it reminds me of, do you remember during the season, I think it was Fred Katz, uh, who covers the Wizards for The Athletic, wrote an article about how Bradley Beal, like he didn't want to request a trade because he had this idea of being this Dirk-like figure and having a, a Dirk type of career with the Wizards. And it's like, yeah, that's a nice sentiment. And like, it's great in theory, but Bradley Beal, you're a great player. Like you're not Dirk. No. And the Wizards are not the Mavericks. Like, I, I I have a lot of criticisms of the Mavericks organization for the way that they've handled certain things. But as far as, like, team building and, you know, the way that they were able to construct consistently great teams around Dirk for his career there, like, there's no comparison between that and where the Wizards are. And, and there's certainly no comparison between Bradley Beal and Dirk Nowitzki. So... I think that sort of speaks to your point about like, yeah, it's this idea of like staying in one place and eventually like, you know, you bang your head against the wall enough times until you finally break through. And it is that much more meaningful when you win in that place that you've dedicated your entire career to. And it means more to the fans there. It means more for your legacy. All that can be true. But like, and again, I'm not, I've said this many times, like if Bradley Beal wants to stay in Washington, again, yes. totally his prerogative. Great. You know, I, I just, I would hope that, you know, his sole reason for doing so isn't so that he can one day have a moment like Giannis is having right now, because frankly, that's not going to happen for him. And that's fine. He can stay in Washington. And, and like, ultimately, I think, you know, like the Wizards aren't necessarily always going to be as bad as they are now. I mean, like, are we sure about that? <laughs> we're not sure about that. <laughs> like, you, like, look, you look at this franchise. Beal, for as much as I really like Bradley Beal, yeah. Beal and the Wizards will be lucky if they get to enjoy one of what Dirk and the Mavs' worst moments were, okay? Like, right. they, they mean... I'm just saying, there's a universe in which Bradley Beal, like, plays the next 10 years in Washington, and one or two of those years, like, they reach the conference finals. Like, the Hawks made the conference finals this year, you know what I mean? Like, it's not impossible to imagine the Wizards, everything breaks right for them one year, and they go that far. Like, whatever. It, it, they can I'll be have honest, man, success. it's hard to see. Okay, whatever. We're, we've gone like too far into the weeds on this one example. because yes. I, I will give you, don't. it is very possible Beal and the Wizards win 49 games and make game seven of the second round one time in the next decade. Yes. Whatever, whether it's Beal, whether it's Lillard, like whoever it happens yeah. to be, th there could be any number of reasons for them wanting to stay in one place. And I, I am always on the side of like, look, winning a championship is not and should not be everything. Like these players' happiness the things that they care about as far as like taking care of their families, not wanting to move, like not wanting to abandon certain teammates or an organization that makes them feel comfortable. Like whether the reason is just, I want this to be my team. And even if that team is like capped out as a second round team, that's still preferable to me than like going to a better team and having to play third fiddle, whatever, any number of reasons, all of them valid. But to your point, this idea of Giannis did it right. And other players should follow that lead is absurd because other players should do like whatever they feel like is best and whatever's going to give them a, you know, the best chance to win. If that's what they care about doing it the way that Giannis did it is a privilege that is only available to like a tiny handful of players on earth. And even then, like we talked about, you know, Kevin Durant's toe is like slightly smaller than it actually is. Or just like, you know, a half an inch further away from the basket. And 
the Bucks don't even win this championship. And who knows if if Giannis ultimately gets one in Milwaukee? Like there, there's so many factors and so many different ways in which things can go wrong, or or uh, you know, a team can fail to reach a goal that it might be capable of reaching, but just being capable of it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen. So look for, for a player to give themselves the best possible chance to win a championship, you know, whatever route that happens to take them, whether it means leaving in free agency, whether it means sticking around or pressing the front office to make a trade that brings in another superstar, like there's no right or wrong way to go about this. I do think it's very clear that, in the sort of public imagination and for Giannis himself, if you want to compare him to like when, when he was sitting at that podium talking about, I could have gone to a super team and won a championship and it would have been easy. Like, who do you think he was talking about? Like that's very pointedly about Kevin Durant, right? So I thought it was about James Harden because of the, because of the beef he and Harden have had. Now I know Harden hasn't actually won one, but that's why, because he was talking about like going to a super team and winning a championship. Right. So yeah, I, I just sort of thought it was like, there's only a certain number of guys he could have been realistically yeah. talking about there. So I kind of thought it was more pointedly about Durant. That's who it seemed he seemed to be talking about. And I think it's fair to say like to most people, including probably Giannis and Durant, the way that Giannis won in Milwaukee feels more meaningful and more special than the way that Durant won in Golden State. Like, I think you can hold both of those ideas in your yeah. mind and, yeah. and also say that like, yeah, Durant could have stayed in OKC and maybe never won. He could have stayed in OKC and won and maybe it would have been more meaningful, but like he made the decision that he made for all the reasons that he made it. And, you know, his championships still count just the same. But I do think like, yeah, in the public imagination, everyone's going to remember this Giannis title probably more fondly than they remember the Durant titles in Golden State. Absolutely. Okay. Let's uh, take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk about some off-season questions. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. The NBA season is over, finally, mercifully. And we're gearing up for yet another abbreviated offseason, albeit not quite as abbreviated as last offseason was, but abbreviated all the same. So let's quickly just run through some of the interesting questions that we have about the off season to come. Uh, we can each throw a couple out there. I'll start with you. What's, what do you think is like the biggest burning question that you have or the most interesting kind of storyline uh, that we're about to see play out here? It's who ends up being the biggest name that changes teams. You know, it's kind of, it's almost a segue from the Chris Paul and Suns discussion I was having because I'm not convinced he returns there. And obviously Chris Paul changing teams would be massive and, would very much change the championship picture going into next season. But, you know, there are a lot of big names in play here. Like, I still don't think Kawhi's going anywhere. But at the same time, like, I don't know, you hear the rumblings about maybe him not being, him and his camp not being happy about the way the Clippers have managed that injury. And, you know, with Kawhi, I feel like nothing's ever really, like, certain. 
Uh, one thing that did catch my eye, and you know, like there's the old saying about how like Vegas knows and Vegas knows best, and mm-hmm. and I know that this is like partly uh, because of his injury, but still the fact that the like it, it's probably like a four to six month recovery based on prior ACL surgeries of this kind for a partial tear. And that like people do expect him back at some point next season. It was very strange to me to see that the Clippers have the seventh or eighth best championship odds. I thought that was just very low. And again, it could just be the fact that Vegas is factoring in Kawhi's injury and maybe him not playing at all next season. But I don't know. Something about that did catch my eye. I was like, I don't know. Maybe it, is some of that taking into account the fact that it it's not a non-zero chance that he leaves. And then obviously like Dame, like, even if Chris Paul and Kawhi don't move, Dame via trade, I know he's still denying that he's asked for a trade. I know he's got four years and what, $196 million left on his contract, but Dame Lillard. He wants, moving- to, do, he wants to do it like Giannis did it. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that, Dame. The Blazers seem to be in a state of disaster right now. Disrepair. Like for all the reasons I've mentioned on previous episodes, right? About like the Blazers don't really have any avenues to get drastically better and they need to get drastically better to compete for a title. I still think Dame ends up somewhere else. Uh, so yeah, that, I think my biggest question for as many interesting questions as there are this off season, my biggest question is who ends up being the biggest name moved? Yeah. I mean, for me, and it sort of folds into that is like, how is Philly going to get out of this mess? <laughs> because, like I've said, I just don't think that they can go to training camp with Ben Simmons still on the roster. I'm curious to see whether Daryl Morey feels differently. You know, whether if he finds the market for Simmons cool enough that he really just doesn't think he can extract anything resembling fair value in a return. Does he just say, okay, we're not going to make a bad deal. We're bringing, you know, basically the same group back. We're going to see if Ben can rehab his value and maybe make a midseason trade. I do think like maybe there is a chance that that can happen. I I don't think so, but I think there's like 0% chance that they can go into the playoffs with Ben Simmons still on the roster. They just had a regular season in which they were like the number one seed in the East, right? And Joel Embiid, when he was healthy, was like 1B, you know? at worst, a top two player in the NBA during the regular season this year. And it still didn't matter because of the issues with that roster. And it's it's almost not even, it is obviously about Simmons himself, but it's more about the fact that like they need a lead guard. And the only way for them to get a lead guard that's actually going to be good enough to get them over the hump is to trade Simmons. Like they don't have another avenue, I don't think, to get that guy. I mean, maybe... There's a way that they can pull off a sign and trade to get Lowry and that wouldn't require them to put Simmons on the table. And maybe that's a way in which they can still make this work. Cause like, I do think if they get that guy, it's not impossible that like it can still work with Simmons and Embiid. It just can't work with Simmons and Embiid and Simmons being the quote unquote point guard. So maybe it works out that way. And that would actually give me a, a decent measure of faith in the team, even if Simmons is still on the roster, just as long as they have that kind of offensive organizer, a guy who can actually be like a pull-up jump shooting threat and a guy who's going to be initiating high leverage possessions for them in the playoffs. Like that needs to happen. I just think looking at their roster, like how does that get done without them trading Simmons? So 
I'm curious to see how they go about that and what they can get in exchange for him and how hard a bargain Daryl Morey is realistically going to drive, given that he kind of negotiating from a place of desperation right now, which is obviously not how Daryl Morey likes to operate. And we've seen, you know, the last time basically he had a, like, would you call James Harden and Chris Paul a dysfunctional partnership? I think on court, it was very functional, but yeah. clearly their, person, their, their personalities clashed to an extent that it became incumbent on Morey to trade Chris Paul. Yep. And we saw how that worked out for Daryl Morey and the Rockets. So his track record on making these kind of trades under pressure is not the best. Yeah, last time he ended up backed into a corner to this degree. I mean, ultimately, he ended up skipping town. After decimating the Rockets. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, but like that that Chris Paul for Westbrook trade decimated the Rockets and led to everything that has followed for that franchise. Yeah, so, as I've said, though, many times since then, I, I, I don't know how much of that I put on Maury and how much of that was like front office order, uh, above front office, like ownership orders, right? From Tillman for Tita. Yeah, I definitely think that played a part in it. I still just don't understand how he wound up trading for a worse player and giving up all of the draft capital in the deal yeah. as well. Like, it just doesn't make sense that he got fleeced that badly by Sam Presti. But I guess, I mean, Presti is an opportunistic guy, and I guess yes. saw that that Maury was desperate and needed to make a deal. And I think, you know, for, for any other GM in the league right now, they're probably going to be approaching this the same way. Like, yeah. Daryl needs to trade Ben Simmons. We have the negotiating leverage here, and it's going to be us that's driving the hard bargain, not Daryl. I'm just really curious to see like how the Sixers go about sorting this mess out. Because as I wrote when they lost, Joel Embiid deserves better. I, and I just, I don't know. Like, can the Sixers give him better? Like, can can they make sense of this roster? I'm very curious to see that. Yes, it'll, I'm curious to see if Josh Harris wants Ben Simmons out of Philadelphia as, as much as Tillman Fertitta wanted Chris Paul out of Houston. Because uh, for as much as both of us and anyone with any sort of finger on the pulse in the NBA could look at that deal immediately and say, what are the Rockets doing? Like Westbrook's the worst player, his contract's not much better. Like all those things, like let's not forget, Tillman Fertitta has said in the years since that deal, or, or it was reported, sorry, that Tillman Fertitta viewed Chris Paul's contract as the worst contract he's ever seen in business in his life. So now he's paying John Wall forty million right. dollars a year. Yeah, so exactly. Um, so my, uh, I think we said we were going to do two each. My, yeah. you, you went Sixers. My second one will be: What do the Warriors look like come opening night? I think that was that, my second one. All right, so we can it, we, we end up with three total. I think that works. But yeah, I think that look that has to be if you're talking about burning questions this offseason, that has to be one because look, if the Warriors just stand pat and and bring Clay back healthy. I, I can be talked to, I, I'm, I'd already call them at least at worst fringe title contenders. Like I still think there's one last gasp here left for the Steph, Clay, Draymond trio with some help around them with, you know, even the player Andrew Wiggins has turned himself into, you know, not a star by any means. But I think, I think if, if he's got those three guys around him and even the defender he's become and stuff, like I, I think that's fine. And Steve Kerr still has coaching chops like the they can win or at least come close to winning as presently constructed by standing pat and just being healthy. But there is obviously another level they can get to any one where there are much, there's much more certainty and much 
less of, okay, well, this needs to go right. And this needs to go right. It needs to be healthy. And like, if they make moves with some of these picks, like they've got the seventh and the 14th pick. Now I know it's a draft that's considered only four or five deep from like a star star level, but it's still viewed as a good draft from everything I've you know read and dug into and having two lottery picks with the talent that's already on that roster and with some of the contracts, like things can be done. So I think what the Warriors look like on opening night is um, it's a huge burning question. And it also uh, will probably shape the title picture, to be honest, because they're probably a move away for being like what co co-favorites or something in the West. And they stand pad and it's like I said, that they could get it there, but there are a lot more caveats involved in getting them there. Yeah, and reportedly like Bradley Beal is someone they have their eye on in the event that the Wizards decide it's time to move on. Is their package of, you know, it's Wiggins for the salary ballast. And I honestly think like the fact that Wiggins has turned himself into a functional player and like that salary is now just not total dead weight going out is important. But like, it's more so that just that salary comes in handy as far as matching if they want to go and get a star. So it's like Wiggins, probably Wiseman, and the number seven pick. And like, A, is that worth it for one year of Bradley Beal? Or maybe more, uh, I guess, if they think they can extend him. And B, is that moving Washington to actually pull the trigger? Or or whatever, Team X and, and Star X, I guess, that they want to go after. Uh, I, I'm really curious to see how you know, to what extent are they pushing their chips in the middle and saying, like, we're going all in on trying to maximize what's left of Steph Curry's prime? And to what extent are they saying, we're going to take a little, like, a, a bit more of a long view, right? And we're not ready to give up on Wiseman just yet. And we don't want to punt this number seven pick. And we want to try and build along both tracks where we can be competitive now, which we think we can be with Clay Thompson back. And I have my doubts about that. And to what, you know, to, to, to what extent do they think they can take something of a long view? And to what extent do they feel like, no, they really have to like trade all their future chips and just go all in on like the next couple of years. I think they're in a really, really interesting position. And I, so just to throw one more out there, and it, and it just sort of goes back to the Sixers one anyway, but I do think uh, one of the more interesting things to me is just going to be what happens with Kyle Lowry. Yeah. Because, you know, I definitely think there's a universe in which he remains a Raptor. But, you know, so much of the Raptors offseason is contingent on like what they want to do with Lowry, right? Because if they let him walk, they've got a bunch of cap space to work with. And they're not going to be able to do anything with that cap space that's going to make them a better team, I don't think, than they would be if they just kept Lowry. But they would have a chance to sort of shift their window where like they could use that space to like throw an offer sheet at a younger player like John Collins or, you know, sign like a Rashawn Holmes, somebody who's going to be maybe like a more sustainable part of their future than like their 35 year old longtime point guard. But I'm just really curious to see, cause they have this number four pick in the draft, which almost necessarily like puts them in a position to think more long-term and their other core players are all like mid twenties, essentially. Does it make sense for them to like re-up with Lowry and, and and like continue to try and be as competitive as they can be in the present? Or does it make sense to let them walk? Because if, if they do a sign and trade, it's like they're taking back 
a lot of salary anyway, right? And then that's like nuking their cap space. It almost doesn't make sense for them to do that. Depending on, I guess, like what kind of prospect or, or young player they can get in a sign and trade, it almost might make more sense for them to just let him walk so they can keep the cap space open. But I think there are just so many teams around the league who could use a Kyle Lowry and the team that he winds up going to, I think, could really alter the championship picture. Like if he were to just go and outright sign with Miami, I think that makes a really big difference for the Heat and for the Eastern Conference. If the Sixers find a way to get him, I think that makes a big difference. I think there were like reports of the Pelicans being interested in him, which I think would be very fascinating. Um, I It would be, so yeah. and I saw those, but I don't think Kyle Lowry considers the Pelicans for a second. Because... You just like don't think they're close enough to contention. No, to... I don't. I don't think they're close enough to contention. And for a, as great a city as New Orleans is, I feel like if if Lowry's going to a not surefire contender, it's gonna be mm-hmm. like in an in an ultimate destination setting. You know, to finish it, it's not. I'm sorry, it's not gonna be New Orleans when the Pelicans aren't a surefire contender. I will say. I mean, there there was also a report that the Lakers were interested or t- planning to target either Russell Westbrook or Chris Paul, which is like for them, uh, they don't have the cap space to do that. So it's got to be a sign and trade for them also. Like, why wouldn't like, I mean, they were apparently sniffing around Lowry at the deadline. Like, why wouldn't he be part of that mix? I would certainly rather go after Lowry than Westbrook if I was the Lakers. So, yeah, I, I mean, know. I, I think the obvious answer there is that, and even the Chris Paul, I don't think they have enough to get Chris Paul or Kyle Lowry. Other than the contracts, I don't think they have enough from like an asset capital perspective. Uh, whereas they they can probably get Russ if you know if the, if the Wizards want to get off that deal, right? Yeah. Anyway, it's uh, the next time we do this will be after draft night, and presumably there could already have been some moving and shaking. It'll be really interesting to see how things develop in the next few days uh, and in this compressed off season. I mean, we got the draft on Thursday, right? Yeah. And then free agency starts like the four days, Monday. four yeah. days after that, the three days after Monday, that. I believe. Yeah. So this is all going to happen very quickly. And, uh, you know, we're not going to have too much time to sort of reflect on the Bucks championship before we all turn our attention to what the 2021-22 season is going to look like. So let's leave it there. We will pick back up next week after the draft. And... In the meantime, you know, just a, a hearty congratulations to the city of Milwaukee, to the Bucks, to Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, and I'll throw it over to you, Cash, for a fan shout out. Yeah, congrats to the Bucks on um, using the makeup remover to get the clown makeup of uh, the last few years off. It's, it's been on for a while, so I assume it's tough to get off, but they deserve it. Fan shout out for this week, Eric Steinman in Delaware, originally of South Florida, says he's a Heat fan, reached out via Instagram to let us know that he is a devoted fan listener. He mentioned in his message that he hasn't been a fan long enough to remember when this was a three-person show, shout out Will Lou, but he does remember our Subway-sponsored Sweet versus Heat segment. So Eric, thank you for being a devoted enough listener to remember that. And uh, yeah, we I do have a fan shout out for next week already in the chamber, but as always, I will remind our listeners our devoted fans and listeners like Eric to reach out on social media, Twitter, Instagram, email, whatever, 
let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. I feel like we've been doing the fan shout outs for about a year now, maybe a little longer because I might have started around, like during the shutdown last year. And and on average, I'd say we've done like one a week. So I'd say, you know, if I went back and, and went through it, I've, we've done maybe like 50-ish fan shout outs. And we know based on the numbers of the people that listen to this show that there are literally thousands of you out there that have not gotten a fan shout out. So again, reach out, man. We'll, we'll get you a shout out. And thank you as always for the support. And Subway, if you're listening, you want to get back in on the action, listen, anytime. We're waiting. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to you all soon. Pound the Rock. <laughs>